This is Frontierland with Dr. Dean Allen. He is the richest who is content with the least, for content is the wealth of nature. This quote from Socrates, the ancient Greek philosopher, could have been written for Paul Lister. An Englishman with a love for nature in Africa, he inherited his family fortune but has decided to invest this back into the natural world. Paul's father had founded the furniture company MFI that became one of Britain's best-known brands of the late 20th century. Despite working in the family firm for 20 years, at the age of 40, Paul switched paths and established the European Nature Trust. Three years later, in 2003, he purchased Allerdale, a former 23,000-acre sporting estate in the Scottish Highlands. Over the last two decades, Allerdale Wilderness Reserve has undergone extensive restoration whilst becoming a thriving tourist destination. Paul's vision is actually to see walls restored to a 50,000-plus acre fenced reserve, thus rewilding the region and creating a new rural economy in this part of Britain. His inspirations include Adrian Gardner, who had a similar vision when he created the Shamwari Game Reserve here in the Eastern Cape in the early 1990s. When you hear Paul Lister speak, you'll understand the importance of investing in the natural world. Enjoy. First of all, Paul, welcome back to the Eastern Cape. Tell me uh, your relationship with this area. Why do you come here so often and what, what do you think about us down here in the, the southern tip of Africa? Well, Dean, um, I, uh, I guess I must have first come down to this region of South Africa um, uh, probably 18, 19 years ago. And uh, that was to come and meet um, Adrian Gardner at Shamwari and understand what he is up to in regards to the restoration of the landscapes here. But I mean, I could go further back and, you know, my first trip to South could have been in the uh, early 80s. And in those days, I was uh, in the furniture industry and I used to buy uh, products from Natal and also from the Cape and also from Eastern Transvaal. Uh, and um, so I have very interesting mix of sort of uh, interest in, in the country, but uh, formerly more to do with business and uh, more latterly and much to do with the environment and wildlife and, and nature. So that was when I first came to, to, to this region. Um, and uh, I suppose, I suppose uh, Africa, or South Africa in particular for me, has, has inspired me on been part of my journey in regards to opening up my eyes into environmental causes and nature and wildlife and and you know Africa for many people is many different things for me it was a trigger uh, and I think it's, it's for a lot of people I mean you come down you see these vast landscapes and wildlife and um, and plethora of species and you know, it makes you think, um, and, but then when you dig deeper, you obviously realise that things necessarily haven't always been that way, and um, you know things weren't always as they seem now, and that you know we've we've done a pretty wholesale job of sanitising, you know, a lot of our a lot of our um, landscapes in the world, and you know South Africa is no exception. You know, you had large-scale cattle, sheep, goats, and so on. And you know, large carnivores, lions and cheetahs, hyenas and leopards became a threat to that industry, and therefore a lot of these things were wiped out. Well, of course, you know, Britain is the world champion at this kind of environmental degradation, I would call it, and we've been doing it 
over the millennia, you know, since I would say fighting the Spanish in the Armada, um, the, 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 the British Empire, Industrial Revolution, two world wars, you know, we, we've, we've lost something like 95% or more of our ecosystem, probably more like 99%. And we're one of the most nature depleted countries on the planet, probably 180 out of a couple of hundred. So it's always good to, you know, I look at landscapes, I look at, you know, the environment, I, I look at it very different eyes from a lot of people. You know, I have a, a nature reserve in the Highlands of Scotland, but, but, you know, people come to Scotland thinking, well, that is what the landscape looks like. You know, these open hills, heather, bracken, the odd tree around, and they fall in love with it. But what they're not realizing is what happened. And through those process, processes I mentioned, um, and Britain being, you know, involved with imperialism and all this, you know, it, it came at a cost, and the cost was our environment. And so we love to tell other people how to run their landscapes, yet, you know, we've, we've plundered ours over the millennia. And, you know, fighting the Spanish in the Armada, you know, building all those ships, these huge old ancient trees, you know, all over Britain, you know. In the Scotland, they, the Romans used to call it the Great Wood of Caledon. Um, and it was where they, they built a wall. It, it, was so, it was so terrifying, you know, to go into those forests and deal with the, the locals up there. They built a wall. Um, and I think, <clears throat> I think, you know, to a certain extent, South Africa, or, or uh, this part of South Africa particularly, has suffered from the same, same kind of demise of the environment. Not necessarily for the same reasons, but more for food and our eternal quest to never-endingly, you know, grow life, produce and grow livestock, which is something we can talk about. I, I, when I first heard about your story, um, I was really inspired because, as you said, as a fellow Brit, um, we're often very good at preaching to the rest of the world, whereas we don't look at our own back backyard. And, and what you're doing up there at Allerdale in the Highlands of Scotland is quite inspirational for many. Can you just ex explain how that came about and why you decided to actually concentrate on the British Isles as opposed to, a, as a lot of conservationists do, they tend to travel to other parts of the world to do their work there? That's a very good question because uh, my, my, my history and attachment to, to Scotland was really started when I was 20. And um, I first began to cull deer, hinds, red deer hinds in the winter. It wasn't the trophy stags or anything like that. We were working in forestry blocks. We were working in, in I was w w with a friend of mine. We'd go up, we'd meet the, 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 uh, the, the, the stalker, they call them. And, and we had a relationship and became friends. And we, we used to go up once or twice a winter and help him with a cull in this particular area where they'd plant all these trees have to keep the deer out and so on. And I remember, um, you know, those days it was, it was a good crack, as they say in Scotland, you know, and we'd have a really, you know, lot of exercise doing something that's fairly useful because we have to cull deer. You have to cull deer because we have no carnivores. We have no wolves, we have no bears, we have no lynx. And so that was the reason why. But, but I, I suppose putting the trigger on a large animal, you know, made me think, even from a very early age, at 20, I thought, why am I doing this? Why? Why are we, why are we, why are we killing this beast? I'm not exactly going to skin it and gut it and fillet it and take it home and cook it. You know, it's not going to be like that. So why am I doing it? And 
and then I always used to wonder, well, what, what, what happened here, you know? And then you, you then also turn your attention to places like Romania, where Romania has got, you know, very intact ecosystems and the trophic cascade is in place. The trophic cascade of life, which is the pyramid, where the large tooth and claw is at the top and the small insects and bugs and beetles are at the bottom. And of course, in Britain, you know, that trophic cascade is completely collapsed to a point of, you know, a huge amount of extinction and, uh, and um, uh, uh, nature depletion at its, at its worst. So when you, when you understand that, and then you've been lucky enough to visit other places, whether it be, uh, you know, sort of Romania or Abruzzo in central Italy or Asturias in northern Spain or even to Yellowstone, for example, you, you, you then piece the jigsaw together and you realize that uh, we're missing a lot of parts. <laughs> So I think the, the, the journey to Aladel was uh, also from a personal point of view, you know, I was probably 40 before the penny dropped in my life about what is the purpose of life, you know, and um, it's something I think about, you know, and, and think about what, why am I here, what am I doing, what is the outcome and what impact am I having? And, and I was spent 20 years in the furniture industry and then for a number of reasons hit a very low spot in my life, low point. And from that point, you know, I, I, I thought, well, what could I do? I can possibly um, go to the Highlands of Scotland and try and create a restoration project. <laughs> well, in those days, um, 20 years ago, <coughs> 2003, you know, starting and talking about wolves or talking about you know, restoration of peatlands or planting million trees or whatever it might be, or and not hunting, shooting, fishing was considered to be a bit crazy, you know, a bit sort of right, you know, sort of out there. Um, and over the last 20 years, I like to think that with all the work we've done, and not only to do with the environment, but also with local school children and education, all the visitors we have, um, is that we've managed to try and educate, uh, we managed to educate a lot of people about what has happened into in, in, in the Scottish Highlands. And so, yeah, I mean, I think I, I also don't want to spend my life on long-haul flights, and it's a personal thing. You know, I don't mind doing one or two big trips a year, but, you know, and I also think that, you know, Europeans are very good at telling uh, other parts of the world, whether it be a, the Far East or South America or Africa or wherever continents, you know, telling them what to do and how to do and what's so important and so on. But yet, on our own land doorstep, We've got some incredible wild corners of Europe that, you know, in, in relative terms would be equal to the Kruger Park, you know. So, uh, I, you know, I think people don't really know that. So I, I wanted to really set up a foundation that, that, that exposed and, and, and looked after and tried to campaign for the last remaining wild parts of Europe. And then on the opposite end, you know, trying to restore areas. So, you know, in Scotland it's about a restoration project. In, in, in uh, Romania it's about setting up a national park where we're buying land in a Romanian foundation and uh, hopefully and ultimately with the government support and local support create a quarter million hectare national park between Sibiu and Brasov, which, you know, Romania people don't really realise that it is the custodian of, you know, sort of <coughs> Europe's big five. <laughs> You know, when you talk about species and 
so on, and the, and the, and the forests there are absolutely primeval. I was in one a few weeks ago, and you know the, the trees are probably 80 to 90 meters. The, the trees, are the, the spruce trees, are just huge, um, and the forest, the beech forest. I was, I was in a place where they were like, you know, up to seven, eight hundred years old, and there was like two and a half thousand of them in this one area. They've all been documented and logged and so on. So, um, so Europe is really my home. I'm European. I'm born and bred in in the UK, and I just think that I wanted to focus on. Europe, but always getting ideas and concepts, which brings us back, obviously, to, to these things Kate and what Adrian has been doing at Shemwari, is, is always getting ideas and concepts from other people. So I kind of talk about the model that I'm doing as a sort of a cake. And it's a cake that I created the ingredients, and I decide how, what temperature has to be cooked at. And I've pretty much made a unique cake. But that's only come from taking examples from other cakes. <laughs> so you know when I see when I see an operation that I really think is interesting, then I will cherry pick one or two good ideas. So I've been here now for two weeks. I've been at a number of reserves and camps and lodges and so on. And I've been, you know, busy Mr. Kodak. You know, I've had my phone out, click, click, click. I've taken all the literature and all the rooms, the way they communicate to to the guests, what they have to say, how you're welcomed. And I take from that what I will and what I think is appropriate to Scotland and we apply it to Annadale. So I think what's important is when you're doing conservation and, and you're doing uh, hospitality that it's important to respect the place you're in and you know you have to have protocols and certain things that, that are particular to that area. So what I do in, in the Highlands of Scotland isn't necessarily appropriate what goes on in Eastern Cape, what happens in, in the Pantanal of South America. So it's it's an interesting journey, and uh, I'm hoping I've got a few years left in me yet to forward it further, you know. Well, I'm, I'm sure you have, Paul, because uh, your passion is clear. Uh, you mentioned Romania. It's a country I've had the privilege of travelling around on a number of occasions. Absolutely beautiful, one of those kind of... Um, sort of misunderstood countries in the in certainly in the European context as well and and as for the highlands of Scotland um, on a fine day there's no better place in the world and it's, it's absolutely magnificent now in the study that I've been doing there the obviously the word conservation is fundamental but this other idea of rewilding can you give me your definition of both what is what is conservation and what is rewilding in your mind so um, conservation for me means protecting an ecosystem that's that's relatively intact. Now, there aren't many of those in the world, okay? Man has had the, his hands on most places. There's very few virgin areas where there's been no human footprint. But nonetheless, you know, if there's been a bit of sustainable harvesting or there's been subsistence um, living, then I can pretty much call that a, an area that's worth conserving. So conservation would be the conservation of not only the, uh, the species, but also the flora. That's actually most important is the habitat. You know, people talk about animals all the time, but I believe that, you know, you've got to have a really sound, you know, healthy uh, environment to, in order to, to, to sort of um, host all, all the species that are there. So, so it's really a... It's, uh, it's really a combination of the landscapes, the forest, whatever, or the swamp, or the marsh, or the, the jungle, whatever it might be, the desert in some cases, 
um, and the species that live in them. That's really conservation and making sure that we don't deplete that. And keeping the species, uh, you know, intact. Because if you take one out, then you know the whole thing can come crashing down. So as opposed to um, rewilding, or I like to call it more or less landscape restoration in the Highlands of Scotland, particularly, you know, rewilding sometimes in in Britain people find it a little bit offensive because they think, well, what, you're talking about wolves and bears and lynx and wow, it's going to be wild. So so it's possibly it's um, maybe that phrase is a little bit too aggressive for some people. I mean, I'm okay with it. So, so we, we, we kind of talk about restoration of landscapes. When you consider that, that Britain, you know, is over almost 100% is, has been given over to farming of some sort, whether it's, you know, arable farming or livestock or tree plantations, what have you, you know, there's very little that's left. And some of the most unproductive of the, those areas is actually the Highlands of Scotland, which is why we settled upon that area to do our work. So, so rewilding, ultimately, if you can, if you can um, uh, uh, protect the ecosystem, if you can plant trees, you can restore the peatland and so on, that's, uh, that's great stepping stones towards a, a functioning ecosystem. But of course, what one is missing is, is the, the, the tooth and claw, the larger species. Now, a lot of people think that I've been talking about reintroducing wolves to Scotland, but it's, it's not. In fact, I don't think that's a very viable idea at all. I think uh, releasing wolves into a, mm. a large-scale reserve, fence reserve, like the Chamois or Umphaloses or Madikwes or wherever they are, you know, like those, and bringing back the wolf. Because what we have in Scotland, and we have in abundance, is red deer. Um, we have such an overpopulation of deer, it's, it's unbelievable. So, so I think wolves don't need forest, by the way, and they don't need vegetation. They, they need flesh. You know, they don't, they're not interested in gnawing away the grass or the shrubs or the bushes. You know, they want deer, and, and we've got that in abundance. So, so I think the, the, the vision has been and always will be is for a fully fenced and controlled uh, uh, reserve where wolves are in there. If you had wolves released, you know, in the islands of Scotland, if they weren't shot, they'd be in Glasgow and Edinburgh, in the Central Belt within a year or two. So, so they'd expand because so many there, they just keep expanding. But they'd also have problems because we have things like roads, highways, fences, boundaries, farms. So it's very difficult to navigate for a wild animal like that, you know, to, to move between one area and the other. So, no, I'm not into reintroduction of those pieces. We, we do work with wildcats. Uh, there is a certain group of people working with lynx, the Eurasian lynx, to bring them back into the Kilda Forest, and that's fine, but you know, I'm, still, I'm still going for the wolf. How do you deal with the, those people potentially you'll come into conflict with? I mean, because this is not a, this is not an ideology you're promoting. This is actually, this is preservation of the planet. This is something that um, that I know you're passionate about, and a lot of people are passionate about. We have to change the way we think. Fundamentally, we're overpopulated on this earth, which we know that. So at the, at the local level, especially, if you're dealing with farmers, for example, you're talking about reintroducing certain species, and perhaps 
Is it a case of education? Is it a case of incentivizing them to use their land in a different way? I know that's an issue we've got here at the moment. So how would you go about that? Well, Dean, don't forget, you just fell into the proverbial pit because you just said reintroduce. And it's not a reintroduction. As I said, it's a release into a controlled area. So no one's livestock is a threat. No one's at threat. The issues we face, you know, in, in, in Scotland in particular, um, is the Zoo Licence Act, which is allowing predator and prey to be in the same enclosure. Well, of course, the Zoo Licence Act, you know, has been created for zoos, not for a, a 50,000 acre fenced reserve. So that really won't apply. Um, then we have this access legislation. <clears throat> in 2003, the same year I bought Allerdale, um, you know, the Right to Roam Act came in, and maybe some of the listeners don't know what that is, but it was, it was uh, uh, an act where hikers, walkers, people who enjoy the countryside wanted to have open access. You know, they wanted to be able to walk from A to B without having to go by, you know, all the other alphabet. They wanted to go in a direct line and, and enjoy the countryside. Now, with 67 million people living in Britain <clears throat> and being not particularly a large place, uh, I think it's very important to connect people to nature. I think that unless we <clears throat> get out into nature and we walk around and we enjoy and we start to understand you know, what's going on, then you know, there'll be little incentive for people to save it. So when we talk about you know, overpopulation, things like that, I understand all those things, but at the same time, you must get people into nature. So this act that came into 2003 was a good thing. And, uh, but it does create a little bit of a hurdle um, for what we're trying to achieve with putting up a sort of 50, 60 kilometer um, fence. So, but that's not a real big issue because there can be, you can, one can work with these groups, these hiking, walking groups and talk to them and sit down and, and, and they come up with a compromise. It's called a, it's, um, it's called a, a sort of deviation, a, a derogation from the law. Now, if I wanted to build, if someone, if Disney wanted to build um, <coughs> Disneyland between Edinburgh and Glasgow and they'd need 7,000 acres, trust me, a fence would go up, it would be called Disneyland, there'd be an entrance fee and there'd be hundreds of people employed and it would happen. So, what is it all about? It's about, it's about creating an, a new rural economy so based around nature. So it's, and, and we all know that you know, tourism is a big driver of, of jobs and it's okay to have a, a flock of sheep and, you know, and rear them over hundreds of acres. But once you, once you have tourism coming and you have nature, people walk around, and they, you know, the, the amount of jobs that are available you know, the plethora to run lodges and hotels and B&Bs, you know, it's just enormous. So, so what we're trying to do is create a kind of a new rural economy based around nature. But, but, but let's, we mustn't forget that it's not a reintroduction, it's a, it's a release into a controlled area. And my stumbling block up until now has been me, really. I mean, you know, I don't think um, my brain is wired to be able to pull that off um, myself personally. I just sort of realized that. But, so I feel like over the last 15, 18 years that I've run three legs of a four by 400 meter hurdle race, probably one of the hardest races on the planet. 
I've run three legs of this race and I'm ready to hand a baton over. Baton over to somebody who's got a, a mind that can, it's like a business. Sometimes when a business grows very quickly and things, you know, you need, you need new management to come in to go to the next level. And this is, this is, not, this is not indifferent from that. And, and I think that what's needed is engagement from my neighbours. And, you know, one or two of the neighbours now are showing interest as I'm sort of relaxing a bit and busying myself with my projects from Belize to Romania to Italy, Spain and Portugal. You know, other people are becoming rather frustrated now because they're, they're well, hang on a second, what is this going to happen? So recently I met somebody who, um, who I think might be able to put some flesh on the bones, but, but, but you know, other than some neighbours are interested, but there's, there's, there's one big neighbour that really needs to be pulled in, and that's, we've got to find the key to, to his lock. And I think it can be done, but not with me at the helm. I kind of talk it like a small sailboat, and I'm happy to be a crew member, but I don't really be on the helm any longer. And um, I'm okay with that. You know, I've always said that if someone else wants to do this project, um, you know, if one of the other large landowners wants to do this project, then great. And I think it's like, it's like you know, anything new, anything different, anything new, unique, always is received with some skepticism. And, you know, when Adrian, you know, set up Shawari, I know that he had huge struggles, huge struggles uh, on many different levels. And it's no different in Scotland. You know, there, there are struggles. But, but we've had 15, 20 years of publicity now. And if you were to read the articles uh, 18 odd years ago, as, as opposed to articles today, there's a big discrepancy. And finally, the journalists are writing, writing the truth and what's actually happening. And I'm not the only one talking about nature restoration or rewilding, as you call it. You know, there are many landowners. We've hosted many landowners at Allardale. Uh, over the last four, five, six years. We see them probably every month. Somebody comes up who's got a piece of land somewhere, a large piece of land, that they want to think about things differently. People start to think about what is their legacy? You know, what happens to that piece of land? I mean, you know, the whole concept of estates in Scotland, which I don't like the word estate, by the way, but the whole, the whole industry was created from Queen Victoria. You know, um, it, I think Albert built... Balmoral, they bought the land around, and and she then spent you know her summers up in at, uh, at the castle there, in and it became like the it became popularised by Queen Victoria, the hunting, shooting, fishing that is you know of um, uh, red deer, grouse, and salmon, and the wealthy industrialists from the south thought, oh, I'll have some of that, you know, I won't mind any one of those, so they came up to Scotland, bought a swathe of property and, and built their castle or built their lodge and and sort of plagiarised what she was doing. But that concept's been going on for over 150 years. You know, what served us 150 years ago when there was probably no more than a billion people around or something like that, you know, doesn't necessarily serve us today. And this this is a big problem is, that, you know, there's 8 billion people on the planet today. And just because something happened in the past and that we've been used to doing something a certain way, doesn't mean to say that it should continue. You know, I mean, we need to make changes, and we need to make them fast. And I'm talking about systemic changes. And change doesn't come easy. Change doesn't come easy. People say to me, Paul, you know, what can I do? Well, it's going to be uncomfortable. Whatever we have to do to transcend, you know, climate change, you know, global warming, 
extinction crisis, rising sea levels, mass migration, all these challenges that we have to face pretty imminently, are going to require huge change, systemic change. And so the change I'm expecting up in the Scottish Highlands is for people to embrace the idea that we should put something back and sort of taking away all the time. And that by putting something back like a wolf in this instance, we create a, a lot more uh, benefit for the community than a few hundred sheep. So that's the change. But, but you know, people are steeped in tradition. British are, the Spanish are, the Italians are, places I work, you know, there are, there, there, there are people that believe that this is the way the land should be run. And that's it. The game set and match. Well, it's not. And, and we, have to, we have to rethink the way we run our landscapes, and particularly when it comes to carbon and sequestration and, and restoration of landscapes and peatlands, re-wetting and things like this. Uh, we, we, you know, we literally have changed the climate with our activities. I'm not sure if you're aware, but you know, after the population issue, which obviously is the biggest elephant in the room that no one wants to talk about, which I love to talk about, uh, the number two thing is our obsession with meat, our complete obsession with meat. And 27% of the Earth's surface, less ice and desert, 27% has been cut, burned, logged and felled to grow livestock, to grow the food for the winter crops and to, to grow the animals themselves, 27%. Now I say that one of the uncomfortable things we have to do as a species is acknowledge it, be conscious of it and do something about it. And that doesn't mean, you know, just carrying on. It means changing. And so if someone eats, likes to eat meat every day, I spoke to someone the other day, actually, a good old friend of mine here in, 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 uh, in South Africa, he proudly eats meat every meal. And he's, you know, that's it. And I'm done. And that's how it's going to be. And, but there are other people who nowadays who are younger generations who are thinking they don't eat any meat. You know, they become vegetarians. It is possible to change. You know, 40 years ago, or 35 years ago, I flew on a plane from Athens to Saloniki, and the plane was full of smoke. It was full of smoke. Full of smoke. Just endless cigarette smoking. You can't even imagine that today. And I'm putting it to the, your listeners, that one day, cutting a steak with a knife and blood pouring out will not be PC. And next generation will go, you didn't. You did. No, you didn't. You didn't eat a dead animal like that. No. Really. And, and, and it sounds daft now. It literally sounds daft. The sugar industry is having to reinvent itself. The tobacco industry is having to reinvent itself. You know, so these are obvious things, but people can't see that right now. Everything seems to have to suffer for us to exist and survive. Everything needs to suffer. Whatever it's the insect on your car windscreen, whether it's the piece of fish you've eaten from a local fish farm, whether it's, whether it's cattle or an industrialized chicken, you're eating a chicken burger that's come from a factory farm in Brazil. You know, whatever it is, it, everything seems that the trees, the forest, the ancient forest, humans have left a huge footprint. And I think we need to have a conscious shift and understand where we've come from that it uh, might have been okay with a billion or two people around. But, you know, in the lifetime of David Attenborough, you know, our great sort of natural history TV presenter, and, and the Queen, in fact, um, in, that, in their lifetimes, you know, the population has tripled. It's gone from 
um, 2.7 billion to 8 billion. And you have to be somewhat dense not to realise that there's a problem when we all want to consume more and more. And by the way, all those years ago, we were only consuming probably a fifth of what we are consuming today, not even that. So it's the multiplier effect is huge. So you've got to be seriously in denial not to realise that we're in a very, very precarious position. Well, I, I, I certainly... Uh, it's, it, it, it's, it's a fearful force. Of course it is. We're all living this life on the planet, many of us with, with blinkers on. Um, and we are now seeing that the, 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 the warning signs are there. They've been there for a long time, but we're taking heed of it at, at last. I hope it's not too late, but what I will say is with people like yourself who are taking individual action and affecting the lives and improving the lives and the environment for many people, I think I think it's commendable. So I think more of us should, should do that. Regardless of wealth, regardless of influence, we all have our part to play, don't you believe? Yes. Um, well, one of my mentors, in fact, there, there are a couple, sadly he passed away, he founded North Face and Esprit Clothing and Chris Tompkins was co-founder of um, Patagonia with Yvonne Chouinard. And I think Chris said recently that, you know, to wake up every day and do something for the greater good for anything other than yourself. That was her motto, to wake up every day and do something for the greater good of anybody or anything other than yourself. And I thought that was a very good motto. And I think if more people can lead their lives by that, that's great. However, however, I will point out that philanthropy, corporate social responsibility, and other forms of giving um, are mostly related to direct human causes. So 97% of all giving is totally related to us, whether it be healthcare, whether it be education, whether it be um, art or, or um, disaster relief, whatever it might be, only 3 to 4% of giving goes towards air, water and soil. The very fabric of our existence, which is nature. So my ask of everybody is to think about that and think about when they do have the opportunity to give back, then think about that statistic. And of course, you know, I, I, I know everybody's on a position to actively give back or do something for the greater good, but I think a lot of that's to do with a lot of people have actually had big families and are going to get back onto the population crisis because when you've got big families, you end up work, 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 work because you've got to feed mouths and you've got to clothe and you've got to educate and you've got to give gadgets and toys and whatever else it might be. So we're a little bit of a crazy eight and I think we need a break out of it. Tony Robbins calls it a crazy eight, you know, the great American life coach. And, you know, it's, you've, got to, you've got, you know, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result, you know, um, you know, is it, it, is ridiculous. I mean, Albert Einstein, I think, said that. You know, to, to expect, to, you know, to to expect, you know, to do that and expect a different result is madness. So we need change, and change sometimes is uncomfortable. And um, the biggest 
change when you think about is just how many of us are there on this planet. Yeah. Yeah, profound thoughts. Thank you so much for your time, Paul. Uh, I want to wish you a safe journey back up north. Please come back to see us in South Africa soon, won't you? Absolutely, Dean. Thank you for your uh, for, for your time, and um, it's a pleasure. And I and I hope to be back uh, sometime later next year. That was Frontierland with Dr. Dean Allen. For more podcasts, visit algoafm.co.za.